welcome to episode four of the Green and Healthy Places podcast with me, Matt Morley, founder of BioFit Nature Gyms and Biophilico Design. In this episode, we take a deep dive again into the world of sustainability and wellness in the built environment, specifically looking at master planned destinations. We're talking to John Goldwyn, Senior Vice President, Director of Planning and Landscape at WATG in London. A business with 75 years of history, delivering master plans, architecture, landscape and interior design services for clients all over the world. When Nobu, Shangri-La, St. Regis, Belmond, Ritz-Carlton or Atlantis the Palm and many others want to build their next place or space, they call WATG to get the job done. These are industry heavyweights in other words. Originally from Hawaii, the firm is especially strong in large-scale real estate projects that integrate nature for its positive impact on both well-being and sustainability. And John is the man flying that particular flag in their London office. I've known John for a while now and his passion, energy and focus continues to be a breath of fresh air, reminding me that there are people at the apex of the sector pushing this same message around nature-centric, people and planet-friendly real estate. In this conversation, John and I cover how biophilia can be integrated into high-level real estate development strategy and master plans right from the start of a project. We look at how sustainable design can contribute to a smart city, how landscaping interventions can help restore native landscape to a tropical island, and the massive upswing in developer interest in pursuing and implementing the kind of green and healthy design ideas that John specializes in. Don't forget to leave a review or subscribe if you like this content. Enjoy the show. Here's John Goldwyn of WATG. John, thanks for joining us today. Perhaps we could just get a sense of where you are right now and and how crazy or indeed vaguely normal things are looking from where you sit. Thanks, Matt. Um, Well, I'm a senior vice president um, for WATG, which is a a kind of international design firm. We've always specialized in in something you're passionate about in in, in hospitality, but uh, my team, which is master planning and landscape, really looks uh, a lot more at larger and, and more holistic projects. And what I would say is right now we're in a really good place. Um, the last few months have obviously been very, very, very difficult on a personal and uh, professional level for many people in the firm. But I'd say we're kind of looking at things with refreshed eyes, with, 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 with a clearer head. And I think we're starting to navigate through um, really where, we, where we're going now in the future. I think it's, a, it's an interesting time, but I, I would say my general synopsis is that things are pretty good. So there wasn't, I can remember very clearly um, in, the, in the last sort of financial crisis where a lot of the sort of long-term um, mixed-use development projects that I was involved in, they just sort of went on pause six months before the economy crashed and we couldn't work out what was going on. Did, did you see anything similar in that sense with, with client work or did actually it kind of carry on more or less regardless? It would, be, um, it would be untrue to say that there weren't some casualties along the way in terms of projects in, in a similar way to the, to the great recession but um in a in another way because of the fact that everyone is all in this in if you like every geography every market every person is sharing the um the difficulties that the world is facing i think that's meant that we've navigated through this with our clients rather than them distancing themselves from us 
So there's been a lot of um, understanding that the rules have changed, but the projects haven't necessarily gone away, if that makes sense. It does. Well, that's good news, I think. And, in, and when you're working on those projects, then, so from a sort of planning and landscape perspective, how could how does how does WATG put put a team together? I mean, are you are you a constant on a team? Are you cherry picked according to the the nature of each project? And then, how do you sort of fit in and integrate into the overall project team? Well, the idea is that when um, when we have a lot of my work, thankfully, is is repeat clients, so they know the way that my my team works, and they know the way that we slot in with our with our other disciplines, but. The idea is that when, um, if we say that you're a you're a new client, Matt, and you get introduced to us, the idea is that um, the master planning is a kind of envelope that contains other elements. So we have economists and strategists that sit within master planning, and the idea is that um, master planning sets the the broad vision and the broad strategy, um, both economically and spatially, in terms of design and um, philosophy. I like to think of it almost like as a as a project manifesto, the master plan. And then be, onto that, you obviously slot in architecture, which is, if you like, um, the major um, design element of the buildings and interiors, which are the the major um, elements of the um, of the uh, sort of insides of the buildings and the way that they link with the exteriors of the buildings. And then landscape design, the other team that I lead, uh, as well as master planning, is the spaces between, the spaces where the buildings interact with each other, the spaces that um, might be simple gardens or they might be town streets or they might be parks or, or whatever. So in theory, you have these four service lines being strategy, master planning, architecture and uh, landscape and interior. Sorry, that's five if you include strategy that that, that all interface with each other and all um sort of uh, bounce off each other and the idea really is that master planning as i said is the project manifesto and if master planning is needed all the way through then yes it's a point of continuity sometimes uh, my personal involvement wanes on master planning um, as landscape is waxing so um, it's all very fluid and uh, project specific we don't really have a, a cookie cutter approach to anything we tend to do whatever we need to because projects as you know are also different and clients are different and personalities are different and the needs of projects are different as well so you're, you're often working on on sort of fairly large scale uh, mixed use developments where you're basically building literally places uh, not just spaces or interiors and buildings but the, the entire many towns right so from from that that sort of macro perspective how are you seeing nature and indeed wellness uh, being, is, are you seeing more demand for concepts that deliver on that rather than just landscaping being an afterthought yeah. where perhaps it's sort of upgraded to something more of, of a primary sales point within the overall master plan? Absolutely, um, absolutely spot on. We we really are. There's been, um, I mean, I, I trained as a, as a landscape architect. My background is in landscape architecture, but obviously leading a team of, of master planning, there's also a very architectural um, element and obviously the strategy team are very important in that as well and it's in my DNA it's who I am as a person and it's the way that I was trained and it's what I've always been passionate about um, permaculture and holistic thinking around um, systems rather than you know rather than designing buildings and landscapes I believe in designing places using nature as the glue that's sticking them together and I think that our industry in terms of the design industry, but also more specifically in our niche of hospitality, has really cottoned onto this because 
so many of the answers are not technological. There's great, great tech out there. There's incredible photovoltaics now, and there's brilliant um, water-saving faucets for the for the rooms, and all sorts of incredible pieces. But actually, if you site buildings correctly, they will do lots of the work for you. So, for example, um, out of direct sunlight in in hot climates and using natural breeze corridors and natural drainage channels. So a lot of this, um, I suppose, uh, ecological or environmental background to which you refer, it's just good design. And it's always good being good design and it always will be good design. Do you, do you think there is, because there is this, there's clearly a, a, a turn towards, or there was already pre-COVID, I, I think, a turn towards or an increased interest in, in biophilia and the role that nature can play in, in creating a healthy environment. And, and what I'm seeing is certainly even a sort of a boost in that interest now as we start to come through into some kind of a post-COVID era. Do you think there's any risk that, that sustainability, possibly even biophilia, biophilic design or nature-inspired design, could, if you like, almost become a commodity that just becomes, you know, a, a sort of something that's quite standardized and therefore no longer a point of differentiation and therefore something that could then be excluded or becomes a fad? Or do you think it'll, can you see that it's actually just going to become completely embedded in how we do things or how WTG do things? And it's almost a, a building, a, a starting point rather than an optional. Yeah, extra. I, I, I wholeheartedly think it's going to be, I mean, I don't mind to a certain level if it becomes commoditized, if it becomes embedded, because I think that, that we still, as a, as, a, as a community of people involved in the built environment, we have so far to go. I mean, it really is, it's nascent in big projects to be so aware of these things. So I really do want it to become part of every single project that I do and that we do, that we all do. I don't think that there are there are any excuses for not doing it anymore. There's too much um, research and too much um, factual evidence about the fact that we really are running out of resources as a planet, and you know things are becoming more difficult. And I think that it's really important that that we take it as seriously um, as we are. And I think talking about biophilia, um, I'm a I'm a really strong believer that we are connected to nature and I personally I I proselytize about the, the fact that I feel connected to nature I feel better when I'm connected to nature and I think that yes we've we've industrialized and we've done incredible things as a as a as a race over the last two or three thousand years and more recently since industrialization but actually I I, I feel the benefits the the benefits that hotels will charge you hundreds or, or thousands of pounds worth for, for, for treatments by just being connecting to nature, by, by bathing in forests, by, by bathing in, in, in clean and, um, and natural water. I think this is something that is going to be absolutely huge for our industry. And yeah, it's, it's on the way. And the more that the industry does it, the better. I, I feel very passionate about that, if you, if you can't tell. But the challenge clearly then is, is if you like, always convincing or satisfying the demands of, of the client so that they're, they're on board with that. Because I think on some level, we can all, we all know what that feels like. We've all sat in a forest, in a park, on the beach, and just frankly watched nature doing its thing and just, just felt that moment of peace. I think it's sort of almost a kind of like anyone wouldn't connect with that on some level, but making the, it's quite a step from that to then committing, you know, large format 
mixed-use developments that fall into line with that philosophy. So are you, are you, is it enough just to sort of present what we have in terms of the small amount of research that's out there? How, are you, how do you convince a client this is the well, way to go? Firstly, I love nothing more than convincing a client that to, to do something they never even dreamed was possible, especially if it's not investing more money. It's just thinking differently. And I think often consultants are very lazy in doing what clients ask them to do, which is, you know, obviously an important part of our jobs as well. I don't, this isn't about ego or arrogance. This is about giving a client an idea or taking them on a journey that they didn't even think was possible. And then the result, um, when, when I've done this successfully, has obviously been the delight of the client. And Again, you say it could be difficult to, to sell this to, a, I suppose you're thinking about hard-nosed, um, you know, dollar-driven driven yeah. developers. <laughs> but sometimes it's just saying to people, look, this space that we're designing between these two towers or, you know, this interstitial space between two buildings, let's just make a space for people to go and be, just to go and sit. There's, there's no, you know, there's no need for them to be using a a green gym or a big graffiti wall to express themselves or, you know, maybe program free. And actually this liberation is something that's really special. And guess what? It's also really cheap for clients to build simple. Um, I, I love this idea of people just being able to escape the energy of the city. Cities are fabulous and um, incredible, inspiring places. But some of my favorite urban spaces are places you could just go and sit and just go and be and just if you like decompress from we live pretty hectic lives and so yeah I guess the way I'm saying it is that often these these things for clients don't have to be more expensive they just have to be different it's interesting I mean I think one of the things that that lead and well have both done rather well is is make space for that exactly that what you described the idea of you know, not necessarily always giving a specific purpose to a to an area or a specific corner of a site, but just just letting that connection with nature be the the sole purpose of that corner or that bench or that that pond. Mm. Uh, how do you think overall whether the the the, the, the two systems then that sort of are out out front lead and well are they do they sort of push your work forward and encourage you to find even more creative solutions or are they in a way hindrances or they sort of, do you find there's any way clipping of the wings or is it, is it quite the opposite from the sort of design and, stra and strategy? Well, obviously they're both, um, if you like, box ticking exercises because they're relating to um, uh, meeting certain requirements for certain elements. So I'm all in favor of clients um investing in these systems because it shows a commitment and it shows a starting point i think it would be extremely um misleading to think that just because your um your your project is adhering to these um these criteria that it therefore is the perfect um biophilic and you know economically um sort of uh, viable in terms of sustainability it doesn't there's not a one size fits all and i've studied so many of these distant different systems and i love the way that well has a lot about mental health and and, and wellness and lead is obviously I, I guess the standard because it's one of the older older systems and 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 briam has has great um kudos in certain markets as well but i i don't think that there's a one-size-fits-all global standard for, for for the way i envisage projects but i would encourage any any client to undertake them to show their passion and their commitment and let's be honest there is a cost uplift um on on development cost 
for doing this. So that I, I think it has to be motivated from the right place. But I, I don't think it should just be kind of extra extra marketing glitter added to a project. Hmm. If we look at one of your um, specific projects, then just keeping on that sort of green and healthy theme, are there any highlights that that you'd you'd sort of um, bring out from, for example, a project such as the Montreuxie Smart City? Uh, I know you're doing a lot around eco-friendly design yeah. and, and integrating that with, with smart tech. Like, how did that work? Well, it's it's quite interesting because WATG um, started our our roots um, in 1945. It's actually our 75th anniversary this year which is it's a strange year to be having a a 75th anniversary but here we are um we started in hawaii and hawaii is a volcanic island and mauritius is a volcanic island and strangely there are a few parallels i mean they're they're on opposite sides of the world opposite sides of the planet but you know geographically and climatically um there are some interesting um connections between the two and a lot of working on on the smart city of montreuxie was about understanding this this sort of notion of what it is like to be a remote island. And I think that a lot of our DNA comes, as I said, from our Hawaiian heritage. So we were able to kind of program um, our brains to be thinking in the fact that that, that Mauritius is, um, you know, at face value, it's the um, probably the safest country in Africa. It's It's very beautiful. It has a lot of tourism. But Smart cities are all about what's next, what's beyond that. Not for people like you and me, Matt, when we visit, but for the people from from the island and for the people who who are from Mauritius. So there's sort of three main pillars, which are live, work and play. And what we had to do to achieve the, the planning permission and sort of get into the project was make sure that all the three pillars of live, work and play were equally balanced. And to be honest, if you can balance the work pillar then living and playing is kind of easy for a firm like WATG. So with that in mind, um, we had to look at the the, the best um, sustainable technology and a lot of things like um, creating this, this sort of alfresco lifestyle. Mauritius, like Hawaii, is a great place to just sit outside and, and have a coffee or walk down a food street. But at the moment on the island, the infrastructure is not there to do that. So we really looked at creating um, great outdoor space, um, great alfresco dining and um, great um, sort of work opportunities for incubating business and things like that. And then the hope is these kind of little um, connections are made between these sort of small elements and then all of the city starts to develop around that. So we didn't go in big bang, huge first phase. It's all quite organic and all quite carefully considered. And I, I know I read that you, you did a lot of work around an attempt to restore the natural landscape, so, yeah. so trying to bring the landscape back. It had been damaged, or was was it? It was suffering well, at some point, and you 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 did work to bring it back. Yeah, to Yeah, I mean, interestingly enough, all the um, early settlers from uh, from England and and from from Holland uh, took all of the beautiful native ebony trees from Mauritius and turned them into sailing boats. Um, so Mauritius was denuded of, of, its, of its beautiful natural um, fauna and uh, flora many hundreds of years ago. And um, really the, the planting of sugarcane, which is obviously uh, the way that lots of our clients made their, um, made their living, was essentially a monoculture. So uh, a beautiful, diverse um, ecosystem and biosphere has been removed to create a wealth generating crop of, of sugar. 
And though really, uh, not just on Montchoisie, but on every project that we're working on in Mauritius, we're really now looking at reinvigorating the indigenous um, flora because it really is fascinating. Mauritius is a tropical island and some of the, the native species are absolutely beautiful. And obviously, because they're native, they need less um, pesticide. And because they're native, they don't need irrigating so much because obviously they're used to the, the, these climatic um limitations and, and these climatic uh, conditions. So um, we've, we've been working with the Centre for Middle Eastern Plants from the Royal Botanic Gardens on re-understanding how to use native plants in Mauritius to be ornamental plants. Now, the Brits, obviously, we've been tweaking and messing around with, with the plants that we use for many hundreds of years. The Victorians really um, got very good at, at understanding that, but it's really just quite a nascent thing in Mauritius. And we're really excited about where it's going. We hope it'll influence the daily life of the people that are actually living and working, you know, the Mauritians themselves, that they'll have a renewed interest in their in their flora as well. So, yes, it's absolutely one of our most important um, cornerstones of the project. And so the idea that you'd be restoring, if you like, sort of indigenous species, then the, the, the piece that happened in between then would be this process of globalization and, and effectively man's impact on the planet, right? Where we suddenly start importing and exporting seeds and species all over the world where perhaps they perhaps not necessarily would be under natural circumstances. So it's an attempt on a small scale to, to take things back to sort of how they were, to a more natural Absolutely. state. Absolutely. And also things like food. I'm a big advocate in edible landscapes. So you imagine that salad is flown in from South Africa to Mauritius. To me, this seems absolutely, it's bizarre. And it's based on economics and it's based on the needs of the hotels that are there. They, they fly in fresh flowers as well for the hotels. And these things are not, it's not only crazy in terms of embedded carbon and just, you know, the, the sort of bizarre nature of that, but also Mauritius is a great place to grow salad. Mauritius is a great place for, for cut flowers. So we can create local economy as well and also resilience because again if there's another covid situation and you're relying on um uh, another nation for your for your food security this is not really in line with 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 where the world needs to be in in 2020 and beyond so yes it's um it's absolutely part of the um the smart city again thinking about monchoisie um, it's about having um food security and water security um at the very heart uh, of the community rather than having a city which consumes which consumes raw materials in terms of food and hydrocarbons and we're, we're really looking at this notion of, of the city as, as an organism that produces its own food that recycles its products and obviously really high up on the list has this incredible alfresco lifestyle as well this 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 mental wellness that i think is so important for all of us it's powerful stuff. I mean, in, in terms of that, that visionary landscape strategy and around the master planning and landscaping and what it can do in terms of you know, creating a sustainable future, what, what typically, if you can summarize, what type of restrictions or barriers are you coming up against working with clients in that regard? What, what's holding you back? Because obviously there's so much you could do. What tends to be the, the key factors that, that put restraints on that process? Yeah, strangely, Matt, it's, often it's government policy. Sometimes our thinking is ahead of government policy. I don't think that governments willfully stop um, environmental change at the city level, but sometimes uh, it might even be, you know, that the policy is based on a, 
an out-of-date philosophy around something, or it may be based on the protectionism, excuse me, on the protectionism of the sugar industry, you know, so that so that that, that certain subsidies um, are in existence or, or something like that. But um, it really is about, um, it's usually government policy, and sometimes it's client conservatism because they don't believe I mean, I see it because I've I've been all around the world. I've seen lots of projects. I've worked for WATG for, I think this is my 17th year now. I've I've seen a lot of stuff along the way and picked up, I hope, bits and pieces from, from different geographies and, and different places. And sometimes it's just having the ability to synthesize all of these inputs and there just isn't the infrastructure in, in, in place. I believe that government governments need to financially incentivize clients to develop correctly. I mean, a smart city gives a developer all sorts of financial um, benefits from from getting the, the smart city planning permission, which I think is great. But um, yeah, I, I would say often it's government policy and sometimes it's just um, that, that developers and uh, landowners are, are, are scared to try something different. So, but, but then you'd occasionally get a project like, say, the, the Green Block project in London, where, where almost the impetus comes from above, right? Where someone like the mayor of London will, will put a project out there deliberately uh, provoking companies like WATG to come up with innovation. So, I mean, that's an interesting flip side to that discussion, right? Perhaps talk us through how you, how you were involved in that and what the proposal yeah, was. Yeah, um, Green Block was a, a very interesting process. We, um, we ran an internal um, innovation competition, which was um, won by a, a Turkish girl on my team called Demet. And she um, envisaged a building product that was essentially alive. So you imagine a, a basic unit of construction that was alive. And about the same time, um, Daniel Raven Ellison and the, um, the whole National Park City London as a National Park City movement was starting to move up the agenda. And, and obviously, Sadiq Khan was also um, starting to really gather gather people around his vision for a greener London as well. And so what I really tried to do was synthesize all of these inputs into something meaningful and to create a way that we could actually, if you like, retrofit biophilia to London. The idea being that to, to make um, really um, sort of deep change uh, to, to our streets requires all sorts of planning permission and in a sense I was more inspired by something like the Chelsea Flower Show which although I'm not a huge fan pops up overnight sits there for a, a few days and then disappears again and the idea being that we could make incredible interventions into our urban realm using planting and recycled materials and as, as, as I said the, the sort of biophilic elements to actually change the spaces that people could go and inhabit. At the same time, um, autonomous cars were starting to, 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 to move up the agenda and this idea that maybe we didn't need so much space on our streets for parking and what would we do with, with, with disused parking spaces and all of these kind of things. So again, so many different sort of zeitgeist elements of, of the time, which I guess was now, must be, I guess, three years ago now or something like that. We started to sort of gather around these um, around these points to create a, a sort of philosophy. And what we've ended up with is this, I like to call it kind of guerrilla urban greening, this idea that you can go in and create green spaces and existing spaces without having to tap into the, um, the drainage network, without having to get planning permission necessarily, without having to um, do all the sort of listed building consent and all the things that make projects move slowly. So 
we're now working with some fairly um, established uh, landowners in, in, the, in the city of London and, and beyond to look at how these interventions can actually improve the city for the people who go, who, who live, who visit and who work there. It's going to take this type of, of, of blue sky thinking, isn't it, to, to, to make that next step. You sort of have to go quite extreme and then perhaps you know, be pulled back by certain more yeah. sort of down to earth factors. But without those giant leaps forward, it's very hard to see how a big substantial change can be made at a citywide well, level. The biggest and um, we've done a lot of beautiful, um, a be- beautiful visuals around this. And the biggest compliment is when people play it back to me and say, this is I saw this and this is my I, I'd lo- I share this visual vision for London. And then they find out or, or I say, well, we actually did that. And they're like, wow. And I that is just such a compliment. And it makes me feel so positive and so aware that there's a lot of people who feel the same, because even just on 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 the level, you can have outdoor spinning classes in these spaces. You could have uh, strawberries that kids, school kids can go and pick. You can have alfresco dining that, oh, yes, by the way, it's also socially distanced. But that's not what's driving it. It's not this kind of. Um, trying to retrofit social distancing into the city. It's trying to build resilience into the city that is preparing for what we're going through at the moment and all sorts of other black swan events that we're not thinking about as well. So I think, yes, it needs some blue sky thinking and it needs people to gather around this. And it's so positive. It's not difficult to gather people around. I mean, we've annoyed a few taxi drivers with some of our visuals because they say, how am I going to drive down, you know, this road based on your vision? Well, Okay, we could talk about that. But generally, people are extremely, extremely positive about the vision that we're trying to create with Green Block. I get it. I mean, it's really it's exciting stuff. And, you know, we've known each other for a few years and I'm just I'm always interested to see what you're up to. It's really great to see the the quality and and vision behind what you're doing with your team at WATG. So, John, thank you so much for your time today. We'll, We'll put the links in the show notes for WATG.com, the social media, and to the projects we've mentioned. And at WATG Designs. There you go. Thank you so much, Matt. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much.